Welcome to the Side Hustle Project, a podcast where we explore the nitty-gritty details behind what it takes to start and grow a profitable side hustle. I'm your host, Ryan Robinson, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you interviews with entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, CEOs, investors, and people just like you who are building and profiting from interesting side hustles. In today's episode, we're talking to Srinivas Rao, the founder and host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast that's aired over 700 episodes featuring incredible conversations with everyone from successful entrepreneurs like Tim Ferriss to happiness research, bank robbers, graffiti artists, psychologists, and more. Srini is also a prolific writer that's been writing 1,000 words a day for the past six years, and he's actually built a massive community of readers that follow his work on Medium. On top of that, Srini's also a best-selling author, and he recently released a brand new book titled An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake, which explores the importance of pursuing creative endeavors without having rigid expectations for their end results. Serena is a man of many talents over the years. He's had his hand in producing animated video shorts in collaboration with Soul Pancake, keynote speaking at conferences around the world, creating online courses, and more. In this episode, Srini and I talk about how he built the Unmistakable Creative Podcast to over 50,000 downloads per episode, not by employing creative marketing tactics, but by empowering and encouraging his listeners to create an organic word-of-mouth referral engine. We cover what it means to be a creative and the deep benefits you can get by creating regular blocks of time to just create for yourself without expectations. We dig into everything from the role of artificial intelligence in the future of work to his best advice for growing a side hustle into a full-time business, sacrifices, failures, and seriously, so much more. As always, you can find everything we mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at ryrob.com slash podcast. That's spelled R-Y-R-O-B dot com slash podcast. Let's get into today's interview with Srinivas Rao. Srini, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really pumped to talk with you. It's been a few years since we last connected. Um, and as many of our listeners here today already know by now, you're the author of the recently released book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And with that in mind, uh, I want to ask you the first question I've been asking everyone here on the show. What book are you reading right now or what's been a favorite you've read recently? That's so funny because there are like five books on my desk and there are literally hundreds of books on my shelf. Um, <laughs> what did I, I, I just finished reading. Oh, here's what it was. I just finished reading this book called Rise of the Robots by a guy named Martin Ford. And the reason I wanted to read that, one, it caught my attention in the bookstore when I was looking. Uh, you know you're an author when the first thing you buy after you get paid for your own book is more books. <laughs> it's just, um, so I, I caught, the, I caught the, this book in the, out of the corner of my eye in the store and I'd been thinking a lot about this because of the fact that artificial intelligence is becoming a bigger and bigger part of our lives. Uh, I think that people don't even realize that they're dealing with and interacting with artificial intelligence all day long, almost always uh, completely unaware of it. So if you've ever dealt with online chat at something like a bank or, or anything, because the, the thing that's interesting about AI is it's not magic, but it can do a lot of things that we think uh, are hard. So I'll, I'll give you a few examples, but you know, I'll give you context first. What made me really think about the realization of the power of these tools is the fact that machine learning is all based on data, right? 
And you basically just need large samples of data. So I started to think about all the things that we do, even as online content creators, that require uh, analysis of data, looking at data, processing data, and a few things came to mind. I was like, oh, well, you know, if you look at Google Analytics, I was like, that's all data. Well, it turns out there's a company called Pave AI that literally will, at the end of every month, deliver a full-blown Google Analytics report to you. That's a 15-page report and uses artificial intelligence to translate analytics into something that you can actually fucking understand. Um, that. And that's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but, you know, another, another thought that occurred to me, I said, wow, well, you know, email uh, marketing uh, is almost entirely based on data, open rates, conversion rates, click-through rates. And so I started wondering, is it possible to use AI to improve your email marketing efforts. And it turned out that this is already happening uh, without our awareness. So we actually just signed on with a company called Amatic Solutions that basically uses artificial intelligence to automate the segmentation of email lists and uh, automate the frequency of mailing. And so that way you actually get increased open rates, increased click-through rates. You know, all the metrics are improved because what they use is historical data and machine learning to figure out who your most engaged subscribers are. So that's that's what I'm reading. <laughs> wow. No, I love that. That's, I mean, I, I like that you immediately find some sort of direct application to your own life too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the other other thing that we have to really be aware of, I, w- I was actually just writing uh, you know, a reading list. So I, I try to produce a reading list for subscribers at Unmistakable Creative at least once a month. <clears throat> I didn't the last month, obviously, because I had a book come out. But uh, that didn't mean I, <clears throat> I wasn't reading the whole time. And so uh, the thing that you, you have to really think about is the fact that none of us are really immune to the possibility of being displaced by automation. Uh, even if you have a white collar job uh, or you're Ivy League educated, there is very much the likelihood that that job can be, can be replaced. So if you think about people like doctors and lawyers, a lot of what they do is incredibly repetitive. And as a result, there is definitely a danger. They're already seeing it in the legal industry. Doctors are a little, little more complicated, but uh, we are starting to see the fact that there's a real possibility that we're going to have to reimagine our social and economic structures uh, based on the fact that we're going to have a, a huge displacement of the workforce, probably unlike anything we've seen in history. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's un, undoubted. You know, there's going to be a dramatic shift, but hopefully the the shift in the technology, the way technology is used also creates opportunities for the people who are in jobs that are being replaced to kind of grow and evolve and change and, and take a more active role in how the future is shaping as well. Yeah, no doubt. Fingers crossed, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Srini, uh, you know, we mentioned your, your most recent book at the top of the show here, um, An Audience of One, and, and it really resonates with me. It's actually currently in the mail on the way to me, so I will <laughs> be digging into it soon. Um, but what I like most about um, everything I've read so far about the book is that the core principle, one of the core principles rather, is that, you know, there's an inherent immense value of spending time on just creative endeavors that don't necessarily need to, you know, turn a quick profit or evolve into some sort of complex business. So can you tell our listeners here today a little more about the book and, you know, maybe yeah. why you felt this had to come out of your head and onto paper? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think context is important here. So I have had this habit of writing a thousand words a day for probably the better part of, I think, five or six years now. Uh, but, you know, to, to kind of set the stage, if you think about the world that we live in today, uh, we have more access to tools, resources, distribution channels, uh, and everything than we have at any other time in history. And the funny thing is that for the most part, what people use these tools for is to check email and update their status and look at stupid shit on the internet. (laughs) Uh, One of my mentors used to ask people, 
do you know how to use the internet? In fact, I just wrote a piece uh, based on this. This is why it's fresh on my mind. And, and you know, he, people would say, well, of course, I know how to use the internet. And he said, okay, great. Show me something that you've made using the internet. And so that, that always stayed with me because that has always been my default sort of view of, of, of technology and the internet is, oh, every time I saw something, I'm like, what could I make using this? The challenge that we've entered, I think, as a society is that we've gone from this place where that default response is, what could I make using this to how am I going to have a skill that I can add to my resume? How am I going to monetize this? How am I going to build an audience around this without ever looking at the possibility that, hey, I could make something really cool from this. Uh, and of course, the result, the, the unfortunate result of that is when the answer to that question of how am I going to do this or all those things that I just mentioned, and you can't answer it, you say, well, okay, then this thing isn't worth doing. Well, the problem with that is that we miss out on so much work. And we also neglect the fact that most of what you do as a creative is done in private, largely out of view of an audience. Now, it's an easy argument to make when you're in my position and you have an audience of people um, who listen to your show, who buy your books and, and do all this stuff. But at the same time, keep in mind that I also started doing this when there was no audience for any of this stuff. Um, I think that if you sit down solely with the intention of fame or fortune, uh, you're kind of hosed right out of the gate. But the, the bigger thing, this is what I said when I wrote this piece about, do you know how to use the internet? We have conflated value, uh, vanity metrics with value. We have chosen to get attention over creating a connection with a person. And effectively, what we've done is we have taken a tool like the internet and we've treated it like we own a Ferrari. And instead of taking it out on a racetrack, we're driving it in circles around the grocery store parking lot. We're basically not using the capabilities of an incredibly high performance machine. Instead, what we've used it for is to uh, showcase, curate, edit, and shrink wrap uh, our lives so that they're publicly on display. And we've quantified every aspect of our humanity in likes and, and other social media metrics. And the idea that you could create for an audience of one is basically flying in the face of all that thing, all those things. Because inevitably, when you go into a creative endeavor uh, with the expectation that it's going to produce some sort of result, you're setting yourself up from failure right for the start because of the fact that there's so much that is out of your control. Uh, when it comes to that. So for example, the, the, there's a lot of authors who say, okay, you know what? I want to write a New York Times bestselling book. That's great. But that goal is so out of your control. Uh, you know, you don't control a lot of things. You don't control how many people open your emails. You don't control how many people click through on the links. You don't control how many people decide to buy if they click through on the links. So you've got all these things that you don't control. For example, let's say that you opportunities. You don't control those either. And, you know, like, so perfect example, um, there are a lot of podcasts that are recorded and I thought a lot of them would come out uh, launch week and some of them didn't. Uh, some of them, you know, haven't come out yet and they, they'll probably air within the next couple of days, but I haven't seen them yet. And I can't control that, you know? And, and so I think that the idea here is that if you shift all of your effort or shift all of your focus to the thing that you control and put your effort into the work itself, the paradox is, of course, that you're much more likely to get a result that you're happier with. Yeah, and I'm glad you called it a paradox, actually, because it's it's kind of this, you know, for lack of a better term, also a mind fuck. Yeah, it is a total mind fuck. It's it's like a chicken and egg, right? You think, okay, you're you're telling me the secret to reach an audience of millions is to start by focusing on an audience of one, um, and that is so 
that flies in the face of literally everything we've ever been told about how to build an audience for our art. Mm-hmm. And I, I would I would actually go on and say that this also too applies to the people that are, you know, maybe listening to this podcast or people mm-hmm. who are taking courses trying to learn how to start an online business, something like that, right? Where yeah. where you're taking all these prescriptions from people about, you know, follow this very linear process and you'll get to this end result of making, you know, a hundred thousands of year from your blog, right? But it doesn't yeah. work that way. And it doesn't work that way at all. And then that completely neglects the fact that every one of these so-called formulas has one variable that throws off the equation and that's you. Uh, yeah. We don't take into account the fact that everybody is unique. Everybody has unique strengths and gifts and talents. And if those aren't being expressed through your work, nobody's formula is going to lead you to the result that you're seeking. So the idea that there is some sort of formula for success, I think that we really love that idea. Uh, I mean, we've built an entire billion dollar personal development industry off of that idea. Hell, I've contributed to some of that based on, on my you know, own body of work. But I think at the end of the day, if you're constantly defining your success by other people's standards or somebody else's arbitrary metric, uh, that is a recipe for disappointment. And so they're really, I think the, the thing that is interesting is for me, uh, this message is incredibly organic because of the fact that we're kind of an anomaly in the world of podcasts in that we've uh, started long before everybody else did. We have growing slower than people who started after us and we're smaller than people who started after us. But at the same time, I don't think about it in the way of, okay, yes, of course, it crosses your mind. You want a bigger audience. You want to reach more people. But at the same time, I realize, okay, what I do control here is the quality of my work. And I am going to focus on that. And the, the interesting thing, of course, is that we have really kind of sustained our growth through word of mouth because our guests, our listeners, and everybody, they share the show with friends and family. And, and it's grown a lot in the last year or two. Um, but the funny thing is, a lot of people don't know that we've been at this for 10 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and now I want to actually talk a lot more about Unmistakable Creative. So, you know, for everyone listening today, Unmistakable Creative actually encompasses quite a few different projects. So, you know, maybe in your own words, can you tell us how you see Unmistakable Creative today. Yeah, so uh, it's funny. I, I gave the, the keynote for podcast movement in 2014. It was the very first podcast movement. And when the, the founders called me, and said, would you be willing to do the keynote? I said, yeah, I'll do it on one condition. They said, what? I was like, I don't have to talk about podcasting. Uh, because I told them, I said, look, <laughs> you guys see me as a podcaster. Probably I don't see it that way. I'm a person who tells stories. And I happen to use podcasting as one of the mediums in which I tell stories. And the other, you know, there are other ones as well. So I'm obviously a prolific writer on a site like Medium, which is another place where a lot of people know my work. But the other thing is, if you look at the stories that come out of Unmistakable Creative, they've been translated into a series of animated shorts that aired on a YouTube channel with a million subscribers, uh, Soul Pancake. If you go and just do a search for Unmistakable Soul Pancake, you can find them. and so, and we've produced conferences based on, uh, you know, people who have been guests on Unmistakable Creative. I think for me, uh, that idea of, of telling stories, emotionally resonant stories has always been at the core of what I did. And so I always say, I'm a storyteller. Audio just happens to be one of the mediums in which I tell stories. So if you look at my body of work, I have writing, I have audio, I do speaking, I've produced video stuff. And, and so... It's, it's really, I never wanted to be constrained by the limitations of the medium, I guess is really the way to, su- to sum it up. So if you've ever read the, there's a Walt Disney biography. I've, I got through about four or 500 pages and I couldn't take it anymore because it's such a long <laughs> book. 
but I got the gist of what I wanted out of it. And one of the things that really struck me from that book was the fact that he said, I, it, Walt Disney's goal as an animator was to exceed the limitations of the medium. So when people look at podcasts, I think their first thought is, oh, okay, all a podcast is is you, me, and, and you know a few other people um, having a conversation via audio and recording it using a microphone. My thought was, well, why not take this and animate it and bring it to life visually? People are saying some really amazing things on the Unmistakable Creative. I wonder what that would look like. Uh, so that's that's kind of the, the gist of it in terms of my body of work. Let's get a short version of you know, what, what it actually is. Now, I know this question um, that I'm about to ask is kind of funny given the, the subject matter of your most recent book, but yeah. back when you actually started working on Unmistakable Creative, I know the podcast kind of came first as this you know, medium to just tell stories and, and talk with interesting people and share their insights. But at the time when you started working on it, did you have any sort of um, you know, ideal vision for where you saw the project eventually going? Or have you sort of just been kind of growing and, and taking the opportunities that come your way? Um, it, it's a combination of both, actually. So when we started the project, um, very much it was this notion of, oh, because keep in mind, it didn't start as Unmistakable Creative. It started as a show called Blogcast FM, which is probably long before your time. Uh, mm-hmm. That was known as the podcast for bloggers. And the reason we started it was because one of my readers, a guy named Sid Savara, was one of the first 13 people I interviewed. And he said, dude, he's like, you're an average writer, but you're a much better interviewer, uh, <laughs> you know, which is hilarious considering I write books now. But, you know, so, so we started out and I, my first instinct when we started was, oh, I'm going to get to interview all these like super famous and successful bloggers and they're going to share my interview with their like massive, you know, fan base or following on Twitter and every interview will go viral. Well, I think if, if you've mm-hmm. done this, you probably already know that that's anything but true. That doesn't happen. The people that cause yeah. your show to grow are your listeners. And I, I hear people bitch about this. I remember Chris Brogan posted a thing saying, you know, this is really obnoxious. He got an email from somebody who had interviewed him and, and the guy replied back harassing him about the fact that he hadn't promoted the interview. And he said, you know, Chris, we depend on, on you know, you to, to our, our guests to help us grow our audience. And I was like, fuck, you're, you're screwed. Wow. That is a shitty strategy. Like you're, you're hosed out of the gate if that's your strategy. Because yeah. the reality is that it's your audience that's going to grow your, your show because they find it valuable. I, that was a wake-up call for me within two months. I, I knew that that was not going to be the case. And from that point forward, the focus was almost entirely on, on how could I become a better interviewer? And, you know, obviously, like, it's funny because I go back to things and we listened, you know, we did two years ago and I'm like, oh, this is awful. I can't believe this, <laughs> this was good then. Uh, and, you know, and so, so that's become my focus. And I think as a result, what has happened is that the vision for what we want to create had obviously changed when we got to Unmistakable Creative. But the, the bigger part of the vision for Unmistakable Creative came from the fact that when we started to analyze, you know, what our most popular interviews were, when we were looking at the stories that really resonated with people, they were like, wow, none of these things have anything to do with blogging or social media or online marketing. They're all just people who have really interesting stories. And one of my mentors who, who played an instrumental role in, in kind of making a shift from the brand, that brand to the old brand, Unmistakable Creative, he said, you could do that with everybody. He said, it's just a matter of, of you know, asking the questions uh, that you're asking and you could really change the format if you wanted to. And so that became the driving force. And part of the reason that we shifted to Unmistakable Creative was because we wanted to reach a wider range of guests and a wider range of listeners. So I think that, one of the things that's interesting about us is how broad our definition of creativity is. We've had everybody from bank robbers to drug dealers as our guests. 
And in my mind, those are creative and interesting people. Uh, they have <laughs> fascinating stories and some of them have gone on to do incredible work after they've committed their crimes. Uh, a lot of things, like there's Guy Joloya who robbed 30 banks and now is a talking head on the, on the criminal justice system. So I think that we, we really have... Uh, we made a deliberate choice to diversify, diversify the types of people that we have on the show. The other thing that we've done, you know, back to that lesson of, of interviewing famous people being a lousy strategy to, to grow your podcast, is that we have deliberately gone out of our way to find people that probably you would not hear on other podcasts. In fact, if you go and read our yeah. iTunes reviews, that's one of the comments you'll see frequently is that the thought put into guest selection is something people really appreciate because they say, you know, like they, they have their podcasts that they think are their absolute favorites. And they're like, yeah, we love hearing from Tim Ferriss and Seth Godin and all these people. But they say, you know, the thing we like about Unmistakable is you're always discovering new people that we've never heard of. Um, and that that's always been by design because just because somebody is not famous or doesn't have a million followers on, you know, Twitter or whatever it is, or doesn't have some massive audience or hasn't like changed the world in you know, like Elon Musk fashion, it, that they have a story worth that they don't have a story worth telling, and so I'm always looking at more than anything: is there a story here that I want to tell? That drives all my choices. I love it. So now you guys are about what over 700 episodes in? Um, yeah, probably. I, I think we've lost count. Uh, <laughs> at some point, it was just like I can't keep track anymore. But yeah, I, I would say yeah. more than 700. I think. That's amazing. Um, and you know, some other quick stats for people, um, over 500 five-star reviews on iTunes, 50,000 ish downloads per episode. Um, and you know, some of the people you mentioned already, Tim Ferriss, Danielle yeah. Laporte, Seth Godin, bank robbers, you've had some incredible guests on the show. So if you had to choose, what would you say has been one of the more interesting or even, I guess, surprising conversations you've had on the show? Well, the funny thing is the people who've gone to prison are always the easiest for that answer because they just have good stories. Um, you know, there are other ones I think that really uh, I, I felt were super heartwarming. You know, people like Bob Goff, who, you know, if you don't know him, he's, he's a, he wrote a book called Love Does. And it's interesting because Bob is, is super Christian. He's fairly uh, conservative in that sense, and he's religious. And I'm not religious at all, but what I, I what blew my mind was that Bob was like the uncle that everybody wishes we had. You know, it was <laughs> there was just so much heartwarming advice in it and all of it. I got to talk to Frank Ostaseski, who's the director of the Zen Hospice Project. We had a long conversation about death and mortality. I, I think that everybody surprises me in some way. In fact, so much so. I wrote a piece, I think you just saw it recently, uh, about the life-changing advice of 100 insanely interesting people on Medium, where I literally took mm -hmm. 100 podcast guests and I didn't write a transcript of their advice. I took one piece of advice and I wrote my own analysis of it. It's length, I mean, it, it so like a, marked as a 35-minute read. It took three months to put together. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, so it, it, that's a hard, it's probably the, one of the hardest questions to answer. It's kind of like asking a parent to say, hey, which of your children is your favorite? <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll allow that one. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier that you've, you feel like sort of the, the biggest growth vehicle for your show, getting up to this 50,000 download per episode, um, you know, area has really been focusing on the storytelling, right? So finding yeah. interesting people, helping them tell their stories, and then, you know, banking on word of mouth referrals from your listeners from that. And I think that that is truly a great strategy. Like, uh, clearly it's worked wonders for you guys. I know others that's worked really well for. It's, it's a long game to do that. Yeah. You know, that you is, can't that is. You just turn a quick hundred thousand listeners. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I mean, that is very much a long game. It takes a long time. Like I said, we grew slower, but I, I think you brought up an interesting thing about story, right? Is that there are a lot of people, particularly in the worlds that you and I operate and who enroll in these podcast courses. And I, I always say it's, it's really convenient that if you've noticed the people who all are you know on this, everybody should start a podcast bandwagon are also people who sell courses on how to start a podcast. Exactly. You know, yeah. um, so that that bugs me, but at the same time, like it is what it is. Uh, but if you go and if you look at uh, media in general, we want to be entertained as a culture. Um, as human beings, we're wired to listen to stories, and so many people think that oh, if I if I you know showcase the best tactics, my show is going to be awesome, or if I employ the best tactics, you know, it, I was writing about this piece about you know this is almost done; it'll probably come out in a few days. And I said, the only viable strategy, long-term strategy for building an audience in an increasingly noisy world is to be so good they can't ignore you. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can either employ more tactics or you can make better art. And if you choose to employ more tactics, you're going to have to keep employing more tactics. If you choose to make better art, it's much more likely that two things will happen. One, you won't have to employ more tactics. Two, those tactics will be more effective when you do employ them. I love that. That is awesome advice. Um, and, you know, as, as we kind of near the end of this conversation, Srini, um, I want to actually ask you a few of my frequently asked questions. So I, I've designed them to be intentionally short on my end, but your answers do not need to be equally so. What's your number one piece of advice to someone listening today that wants to grow a side hustle into a full-time business? Well, that's, that's a tough one, but what I, I would say are, are two things. One is to give yourself a runway. Uh, the mantra of, you know, jump without a parachute and build it on the way down is, it's nice. It makes, it's, in my mind, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you're a Reed Hoffman. You have a shit ton of money. It's, it's a <laughs> easy quote to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing is, is that don't resist the idea that you could do this on the side. I mean, you called it a side hustle. Somebody once told me this actually uh, was from Diana Valentine and it was a really good piece of advice. Uh, I wish I'd written this down and it said, basically treat your, your day job as your first angel investor in your company. So take a certain amount. That's great. So there are two things that you should do. You should take time and you should take resources that are dedicated to getting you from your side hustle to the thing that you say you want to do. What kinds of sacrifices do you feel you've had to make in order to put enough time and effort into growing your business over the years? Oof, that's a that's a landmine, but um, I'll give you a short answer because otherwise it would be ridiculously long. <laughs> I moved back to my parents' house uh, and I lived there from age 30, some 31 to 30 seven or 38, which that's kind of embarrassing. Um, but that is, um, that, that was one of the biggest ones. That is the biggest one, uh, among others, you know, I mean, there's, you know, dealing with financial uncertainty. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty in this. That's just how it goes. Yeah. 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 It's tough. Do you have any particular strategies, tactics, ideas you've tested out that, uh, come to mind at least as having ended up as a failure, something you would tell people to avoid? Well, I mean, I think the the notion that, oh, I'm going to interview famous people and ride their coattails, that's one. Um, mm-hmm. That is the big one. I, I think that the, the other thing I, I see is, I see this often, and I think that people forget that, you know, one, when you want to build relationships with influential people, uh, when you come to them and, and you have nothing to offer, it's a hard sell. And not only that, if you do come to them, realize that lots of people are, are demanding of their time. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great context. So Srini, this is my last question for you. What's been the best investment you've ever made in the context of growing your business? And this could be in the form of time, money, tools, education, products, services, or otherwise. I think in t- I, I would say in terms of time, and it, time by, t- by that I mean time spent with two people. Um, one is my, my business partner, Brian. The other was with my mentor, Greg. And both of those people had a, a profound impact on, on sort of where we've ended up. Uh, I think that without them, uh, we would not be you know, in, in the situation that we're in right now. I love it. People. All right. Well, Srini, thank you again for joining us. Um, everyone listening today, go out and grab Srini's book. Um, it's called An Audience of One. So would you like to to direct our listeners today anywhere else? Um, no, that's, I mean, if they, they like, the, you know, podcasts, Unmistakable Creative can be found on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. But yeah, other than that, um, that's it. All right. Well, Srini, thanks for joining us. Awesome. If you enjoyed this episode of the Side Hustle Project, I would love your support. Head on over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating. And as always, you can catch every episode of the Side Hustle Project on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.